Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. LiquidChurch.com, living water for a thirsty world. Can we hear it for the band one more time? Those guys did an awesome job. Great stuff. Awesome, awesome stuff. Don't stop believing. Hold on to that feeling. That is gold, okay? That is, at least when I sing it in the shower, it's gold. And uh, it actually did go gold, literally, back in 1981. I don't know if you remember this, but Journey scored a gold record with their vintage album, Escape. Who is old enough to remember Journey? Okay, big deal. Yeah. <laughs> big deal in 1981. Don't Stop Believing was their signature song. It still is, actually, whenever they perform nowadays at Six Flags. And, um, hey, 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 back off. Uh, Kind of an anthem of hope right in the face of opposition or tough times. Don't stop believing. That, that theme actually has been hijacked by sports teams and politicians. Uh, a few years ago, the Chicago White Sox used it in their improbable run to the World Series. Don't stop believing all the way through the playoffs. Uh, Hillary Clinton used it during her presidential run with a little less success on that. Uh, but it's definitely memorable and not just for Steve Perry's mullet. Um, that's not the only thing here. Now, just careful. Don't look directly at his pants. You have to avert your eyes a little bit there. It's like, wow, how tight were pants in the 80s? It's craziness. But this... <laughs> See, I'm not going to recover from this. I can't... Don't stop believing. It's a phenomenon because it was released 27 years ago, if you can imagine this. And now, out of all songs released prior to the 21st century, it is now the most all-time downloaded song in the iTunes Music Store. Absolutely incredible. This past August, this is, the, the, the song actually topped the 3 million mark in downloads. Why? It is a statement of defiant faith, and in fact, I, I, it's the pants, really, right? <laughs> You're like, what's the obvious? I mean, uh, you know, the members-only jacket. No, if it's, it's a defiant statement of faith that if we were renaming the encounter that Jesus has with a crippled man in the Gospel of John, that's what we would call chapter 5. Don't stop believing. In fact, let me invite you to turn there with me. Take out your Bible, would you? It's in John chapter 5, page 739. And we're in our fourth week of our series, Rock God, in which we are using some of the all-time rock anthems as a springboard for exploring five encounters of faith that Jesus has throughout the Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And if, if you're just t- tuning in, this is a, actually a great time to join us because the situation that Jesus encounters in Jerusalem here applies in so many ways to those of us who are facing crippling challenges in our lives. Uh, We're told God's Word says that it is living, it is active, it's like this double-edged sword. In other words, it kind of penetrates very clearly. And my prayer is it's going to speak directly to some of you today, even in this room, or maybe you're watching online. We're glad you're with us. So let's read this together. John chapter 5, we'll start at verse 1. Notice the official title is The Healing at the Pool. And it reads this, it says, Sometime later... Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want... To get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, 
pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured and he picked up his mat and walked. And we'll just stop there at verse 9 because you need to understand a little bit about this encounter. The text says that Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast and most likely that was one of many festivals that took place in Jerusalem actually around this time of year is probably September or October. And in the temple there was the north wall. There, there, there was something called the sheep gate which guess what went in through that gate? I want to take a guess on this one. Sheep, look at you, Bible scholar over here on the left. Actually, sheep would have gone in there and gone into a pool to be washed before it was taken to the sanctuary to be sacrificed. Now, this is significant because that pool was the place where invalids would lie in hopes of being healed. There was an urban legend in the first century, you can actually see it in your footnotes, that said every once in a while an angel would come down from time to time and stir the waters of this pool. And the, and, and the legend was, first one in the pool was the one who would be cured of whatever disease they had. Most likely, scholars acknowledge that the waters being stirred was actually the, the, the spring just bubbling up there. But you see the, the urban legend. Look at your footnotes on verses 3 and 4 there. Either way, you understand, you get this, why it says a great number of disabled people used to lie there. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. I mean, if you have a major handicap, and this pool is your only hope you are there. And it's like, well, who was there? The major one, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And, and the, the reality is the pool was called, if you look in the notes, it says Bethesda, which means house of mercy. And that was a fitting term given the desperate state of people lying there in hopes of this miracle in their life. And day after day they would lie there waiting and waiting and waiting for the waters to stir. But in verse 5, one guy gets singled out. It says, one who was there had been an invalid for how long? 38 years. That is a long time to limp around. I am 38 years old myself, and that means since birth, this man had been stuck with this, with this handicap. In fact, he had been an invalid longer than most people in the first century actually lived. The average lifespan was about 40 years in the first century, so most likely since birth. And out through all that time, nothing had cured him. Years after year, the water stirred, and he probably crawled towards the pool, but someone always beat him in, and others got the quick cure for their disability, and nothing had cured him. And my guess is that somewhere along the way in that 38 years, he stopped believing. He stopped believing that things could actually change in his life, that things could be any different. In fact, he probably assumed that he would be saddled with this for the rest of his life. It's interesting because we all have handicaps, don't we? I mean, I'm not, I'm not just talking about like wheelchairs or crutches or physical handicaps that you can see, but I'm talking about the handicaps that really no one can see, the kind that some of you even walked into with today, the parts of our lives that are crippled or, or even just lame in some way. Could we say it that way? The, the, it's a thing in your life that you wish could be changed miraculously like that because it's just always with you and there's no instant cure, it seems. No miracle seems to come and so you actually get used to living lame limping along through life, day after day, week after week, year after year, until it becomes a way of life for you. We grow comfortable with it. We learn to live with it. I'll give you a few examples. Maybe it's a relational handicap. Maybe, maybe you have, can I say this? Maybe you have a lame marriage, <laughs> and you've waited and waited for things to get better, but they seem to just stay the same, or they get worse 
In fact, year after year, you get older, but the distance grows, and honestly now it just kind of limps along, and your year's in now, and so whatever hopes you had, well, things will get better next year, is just gone. And you're comfortable with a subpar marriage. You live with lameness. Or, or maybe your handicap is financial, right? Maybe you've struggled all your life with money. You're always in debt, you're always behind, and you've hoped that someday that quick fix, that instant miracle is going to come in the mail. The check from heaven, thank you, it's like mana. But it never does. And so you've stopped believing that actually financial health is even a possibility. Not in this life. You learn to live with financial lameness. And you figure, well, I'm, I've never been good with money. I'll always be in debt. So, you know, I feel, uh, what's the word, uh, paralyzed, stuck. Ever feel that way? Or maybe you're here today because you have a spiritual handicap. It's actually something, something nobody can see, like a, like a private habit or it's an addiction, like alcohol or porn. It actually kind of keeps you at an arm's distance from God and actually the ones who really love you, but you've tried so many times to get up and walk away and quit and all sorts of good intentions, but you always pull up lame and, and, and find yourself back in the same place, and it's been going on for years. It's a way of life. I mean, that, that's literally like how addictions work. It starts with, you know, I get to have a drink or two with friends. It kind of like loosens me up in social situations, and then I need one or two before bed because it kind of winds me down and everything, and, and we come up with lame excuses to justify something that's actually come to control us and is slowly destroying the lives of those around us. I mean, what, what is your lame excuse? This, this man, actually, who he offers Jesus when he encounters him in verse 6, he offers him this excuse. He actually says this. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? And at face value, it seems a little bit insensitive, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, this guy, get this, I mean, Jesus, I, I, we get this, but he's been crippled for 38 years. That is a long time. And Jesus is like, so do you want to get well? I'm thinking this guy's like, hmm, I'm not sure. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, hello, 30, almost four decades here. Now, don't miss this, because Jesus is not being cruel here. He is actually boring down to a heart level and questioning this man's desire. On the most basic level, of course, this guy wants to get well. That's why he's sitting by the pool. He wants a miracle. But Jesus is like, no, do you really want to get well? Because reality is, for many of us, sometimes our problems come to define us. They actually become our identity. This becomes who we are. And we stop believing that even God could change a thing in our lives. And we come up with lame excuses to justify our stuckness, our paralysis, that's what this man does. Look at this in verse 7. This is amazing. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. Go ahead and throw that up. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Can we read all the words that are underlined together? No one, me, I, someone else, me. Notice where the emphasis is. <laughs> me, right? On my problems. No one helps. I'm always last, others are first, I don't get ahead. And suddenly you realize that this man's handicap had literally become a way of life. It affected how he viewed everything. And that happens for so many of us. I call this the big problem, small God syndrome. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? When you have a situation or a problem in your life that becomes so big, it literally overshadows and overwhelms everyone and everything else, including God. I'm all alone, I can't see anything else, I'm hopeless. That's how this man felt. 38 years and his handicap had gotten so big, he can't even see Jesus standing in front of him. That's when you know you've got a big problem, small God syndrome. 
when you look at this thing and actually think, I can't do anything about it. No one else can help me with it. In fact, I don't even know if God is big enough to work in my life. And maybe today, Jesus is asking you a similar question. Do you want to get well? No, really. Do you want to? Or have you grown so comfortable with this thing? Have you grown so comfortable with a subpar relationship? With me? With your significant other? Have you let it limp along? Has, has your addiction or habit grown so big that everything actually revolves around it? You wouldn't even know what it's like to live without it in your life. Have you grown so comfortable living with some portion of your life that is just plain lame? Maybe God is literally asking you that question today. Do you want to get well? Really? Seriously? I'm, question, I'm asking you. And if you're honest, maybe you're sitting there and you're like, you know what, Tim? All right, you want honesty? Honestly, I don't. Because I know what that would mean. <laughs> I know God asked for 100%, and where I'm living at this point, I can only muster 25%. That's what got me here today. I can give him 25% <laughs> Sunday. Or you feel hopeless because you've just struggled with this thing for so stinking long. The truth is, folks, your problem may be big. But God is so much bigger, as Jesus is revealing here in John 5. It's interesting, my kids now are in Chase, my daughter is in second grade, and Del just started kindergarten, and so we sometimes have conversations at the dinner table, dinner table theology, and so I throw this out there, just kind of, I was like, hey, yeah, so, uh, so how big do you think God really is? And it was awesome, because Chase, who's, who's in second grade, she's learning vocabulary, and she goes, she goes, I know, Daddy, he's gigantic, like this, and she stretches out her arms like that. And it was hilarious because as she does this, it's kind of like jazz hands, gigantic, you know? And as she does this, my little boy who's in kindergarten just starts shaking his head. No, 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 no. I was like, okay, Del, what, what do you think? He goes, he's gylormous. He took, you know, enormous, humongous, gigantic, titanic, and put them all like in together. God is gylormous. And you know what? There's actually truth to that. That no matter how big your hang-up appears, your habit appears, that God actually is big enough to handle it, and he can heal you. But there's this. You must be 100% willing to do whatever he tells you. There's a name for God in the Old Testament. Exodus 15:26 says this. It says, For I am the Lord who heals you. And the word heal in Hebrew is Jehovah Rapha. It literally means the Lord, our healer, capital H. What the ancients were getting at is that Jesus, in, he is the spiritual surgeon of the soul. No matter what your exterior you know, hang-up hurt habit is, Jesus is the spiritual surgeon of the soul, and he can heal you at a deeper place than even Dr. Phil. Imagine this. Don't throw stones. And even Oprah. Whoa, ah, back off. Relationships can't heal you. The only one that can heal you is Jehovah Rapha because what you're struggling with actually cuts much deeper than the surface symptoms. You actually need a surgeon of the soul here whose grace and truth can actually cut in and penetrate to the dark places and break strongholds that are completely impossible with man but are entirely possible with Christ. My question to you, is there a lameness or a handicap in your life that maybe no one can see? Do you suffer from the Big problem, small God syndrome, I understand. But Jesus asked, do you, do, you, do you want to be well? This guy has all sorts of excuses. I have no one to help me. Well, I'm trying. 
Someone else cuts ahead of me. You hear the disbelief, actually, the whining in his voice. Life is all about him. It's all about this. I need to get well, and no one can help me. And this gets so big that I can't even see Jesus, the living Son of God, Jehovah Rapha, standing right in front of me. The great physician is here. And maybe you're like that right now. Maybe you're thinking that. You're like, hey, that's great, Tim, but uh, I don't know. Because you look at your deal, and you have all sorts of excuses like this guy did. But Tim, you don't know what it's like, dude, to, to, to be out of work. And my question is very simple for you. How big is your God? Tim, you, you don't know what it's like to be hooked, man. You don't know what it's like to be addicted. You're correct. I don't. How big is your God? That's my question. Tim, you don't know what it's like to have a relationship that's like lifeless and, and you need CPR, it's dead. I don't. How big is your God, though? I understand that your handicap seems huge and maybe it's all you can see right now, but I'm going to ask very respectfully, how big is your God? See, no matter how trapped or hopeless you feel, Jesus is saying, I can bring healing to the deepest parts of the soul. As Jehovah Rapha, I have the power to change any situation, but catch this, you must take him at his word and do exactly what he tells you. Senior year um, in college, there were five of us living in an off-campus apartment. We uh, had been doing that for a couple of years and all went very well to our senior year until I developed actually a, uh, very ashamed to say this, it's a major rift uh, in relationships with one of my roommates. And uh, we'd lived together for about two years and, uh, you know, it's like in college, you guys remember this, our crib was always, you know, the kind of the center of fun and, and kind of fun stuff. And, but he got, the problem was that, I'll just be honest with you, he got engaged. And see... <laughs> senior year he gets engaged and he starts acting all serious and you know comes in kind of telling me and and the other guys to kind of you know you guys need to grow up you know it's like senior year man we're going the real world and we're like back off okay man we're like what this is not the brady bunch man we're we're like we're still in college here we felt he was being condescending so we took it upon ourselves that you know it was our spiritual responsibility to take him down just a notch and um so he had a job, and he would go to bed early, you know, 9, 10 a.m., because he had to get up at like 5 a.m., and that's when we would just crank the music right out, man. Dun, 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 dun. If we knew he was having his fiance over for dinner, we would, uh, you know, like hide a bowl of old egg salad behind the couch, pre-stage that mother for a couple hours, you know, just kind of waft that through the room and everything. It was just terrible, you know. College just brings out the maturity. And uh, it just escalated from there as things do in college. I'm ashamed to say this, but the big rift in our relationship occurred, and his name is Tim, actually, ironically. His name's Tim, my name is Tim. A big rift in our Tim relationship occurred, actually, over his, uh, his fish tank. Junior year, he got this aquarium, and he bought a piranha named Perry. Kind of classic guy's pet, you know, get a piranha, watch him eat stuff, and, you know, or whatever. By senior year, again, because he got engaged, he had a job, he was planning for life after graduation. It was kind of funny because, well, it wasn't funny, but Perry got neglected. And that fish tank got really dirty and skanky. It was disgusting, you know. So in the midst of kind of our little Cold War together, we started like writing in the algae, you know, clean me, you know, save me, you know, on, on this fish tank. So we said, look, dude, we didn't say it to him, but we, you know, if you don't do something with Perry, we will. So one day while he was out at work, we were like, that's it, we're going to do this. And we took the tank off its stand, and we're like, we're going to empty this thing out. And, 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 but then we realized it has a piranha in it, so what do you do? So we poured Perry into the bathtub, and it was, it was disgusting. I mean, so we, it was kind of like, what do we do with a piranha in the bathtub? So we actually left him there. We're like, you know what, leave this on Tim's bed. He can clean his own tank. 
And so he left it on his, on his thing, and Perry the Prawn just kind of swam around, and, uh, and, and Tim came back, and he just saw the tank, and he just ignored it, because we weren't even speaking at that point. We went to a Christian college, by the way. <laughs> Days went by, and this piranha was still in the bathtub, so we couldn't shower. Uh, <laughs> But after about five days, we were like, I think we can actually deal with Perry because he's no longer this, like, you know, ferocious, snapping fish. He's just kind of, like, leaning to one side, you know, in the bathtub there. And so we said, this is no way for a fish to live. And this, this is where it gets crazy. Um, because one night, we, we were grilling out. And you know those, like, hot dog tongs, you know, you use? Like, flip hot, flip hot dog? I know. Just, it's, I just, I, I'm a sinful man. Just listen. Um, somebody scooped Perry out, actually, with a, with a pair of those hot dog tongs and carried him through the apartment. And as fate would have it, we were cooking hamburgers on the grill that night. And we, I just, it's mercy. And uh, we were carrying Perry with these poor hot dog tongs. And before you know it, I don't even know who's responsible. Poor Perry, <laughs> look at me distancing myself from this. I can see the disgust. The PETA people are like, this is an outrage. Perry ended up on our barbecue grill. I know. It's all right, it's all right. I just... And, um, and it, was so, it was so sad because someone's like, fish burger, you know, kind of thing. And uh, now look, I have realized, I just realized, I just want to acknowledge here, just, there's a point to this. This is wrong on so many levels, okay? This is like, hi, sin, please do not email me, don't call PETA, I have since repented, okay? It was a shameful thing. I mean, who grills their roommate's piranha during senior week, right? Uh, but we did, poor Perry. And, um, and when a roommate came back the next day, and he'd seen what happened. I mean, he was understandably upset, right? I mean, he was actually, it was actually moving because Tim, Tim was close to tears. And he actually grabbed his stuff and actually left our apartment, and I never saw him again for eight years. That was our senior week. That's the last I saw of him. I actually saw him at graduation. We didn't make eye contact. We kind of avoided each other. And quite honestly, I didn't care. I know this is going to come out as a great surprise to you, but I was not exactly living in a close relationship with God at this moment in my life. And we didn't speak for eight years. Someone I had spent two years bunking with, that's how it ended. And I like, knew that it was wrong to let it go like that, but I, I came back you know, on the East Coast. He actually settled in the Midwest, and the distance kind of made us comfortable. We, we actually learned to live with it. He didn't, we didn't see each other. And every once in a while, our circles would like overlap in like, emails, you know, with the same email chain. It would be a little bit awkward, but I grew comfortable with this rift in this relationship and aware that you know, there was some low-level static out there on some level, but I just basically ignored it until two years ago when I joined Facebook. <laughs> you know how when you join Facebook, they suggest friends? Well, someone suggested, oh, dude, you ought to friend, you know, Tim, he's your roommate. Uh, and I laughed, sort of, because all those raw feelings came flooding back in, the bitterness, the unforgiveness. So I like, kind of tried to put it out of my mind. But God decided not to let that one go a bit. Because that week, in my devotions, my personal time with God, I'm reading this passage in Matthew 5, where Jesus actually says, if you're offering a gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be, here's the word, what? Reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. And I remember reading this and thinking, wow, well, that certainly applies to someone's life. I mean, not mine, but certainly someone should, you know. But Jesus' words challenged me because I'm reading this, and Jesus is saying reconciliation is a form of worship. Actually, making yourself right with others is a precursor to even making things right with God. 
So that night, it's like burning in my head, and I kept thinking of my former roommate's face, you know, and just, I was like, I want to delete that friend request, that whole thing. But God kept prompting me, you either believe this or you don't, you're going to take me at your word or not, or blow it off. See, by this time, God had actually been doing uh, some major work in my life, resensitizing actually me to the relational nature of the gospel. It wasn't just this thing that like, you inherited from your parents, but it is literal living and active. And I started learning about grace, and that literally living with unforgiveness towards others was a major offense to God. I want to be forgiven, but I'm not forgiving you. So I took a, a deep breath, <laughs> hit private message on Facebook, and actually emailed them. And I, it took me a while to write it. It wasn't a long email, but I was like, hey, bro, it's Tim Lucas, and I'm guessing that name doesn't evoke great memories. <laughs> uh, Tim, I just needed to... I know this is out of nowhere, but I need to ask... I just need you to ask you to forgive me for what I did senior year. I know, you know, time heals all wounds, but I don't want to minimize what I did to you. I treated you very cruelly our senior year, and it was lame, and it was, it was wrong. And I am sorry for that. I just want to ask your forgiveness. God has been doing a lot of work in me since college. In a lot of ways, I'm like a different person, and Jesus has been changing my life, and, and I, I asked him to forgive me, but I need to ask you, I'm sorry, and I get it if it's not in the cards, but I am sorry for all I did to hurt you, truly. I wish I was more mature, but God's, God's making me this new creation, and I am sorry for cooking Perry. You know, there's, it's like, how many emails do you get to sign that line? Like, sorry about the piranha. Like, you know. And I, and I was quaking as I sent that email because I was like, is he going to forgive me? Will he or will he blow it off? Will I never hear back? But I release it to God because I'm like, this is what Jesus said to do. And I've lived with this rift for eight long years. The cool part is that actually a week went by without hearing a word, and then I got a, a note back, and it said, uh, hey, Tim, wow, wasn't, wasn't expecting that, and uh, wasn't expecting you to be a pastor either, uh, you know? <laughs> Surprise, you know? Uh, but I really appreciate you reaching out, and you're right, things did get crazy, you know, our senior year. The way that he said this, he said it was a terrible way to end our senior year, and for years I'd been wondering what I did to make that, all that happen, and it was a big hurt to me. But dude, your note is an even bigger blessing. I thank God we both serve a huge God who is full of mercy and forgiveness, and all is forgiven, even Perry. <laughs> Looking forward to a new chapter, your friend Tim. Now, I know that's kind of a crazy example, and some of you are facing things in your life that are a lot bigger than a fried piranha. I get that. But don't miss the point. I'm convinced God brought healing to that relationship for one reason. Although I had grown very comfortable with that rift, I knew it was living lame, living less than what God wanted for me as a follower of Christ. You, you, don't, you don't just hurt someone and let it linger for eight years. Get used to the distance. That, that's lame. So I took the truth of God's word and actually it weighed on me. I did something scary. I actually did what God told me to do and I reached out to repair things and seek reconciliation. And I believe God literally did heal that relationship. But only because I took Jesus at his literal word and did exactly what he told me to do. Whenever you go through the Gospels, this is the key to serious healing. This is how the man by the pool receives his healing. Look at this. He does exactly what Jesus tells him to do. Look at verse 8. Then Jesus said to him, two words, let's say this together, what? Get up, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. 
And this guy literally lists a bunch of excuses, but Jesus looks at him and he says, no, to get up. Notice that there's actually an exclamation point. At first, Jesus asks him a question. So do you really want to get well? Question mark. But then he gives him a command. Good. Get up. Stop lying there. Stop blaming others. Hear my word and obey it. Take a step. And guess what happens? Verse 9. The man obeyed, and at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked because he listened to Jesus, heard his words, and did exactly what Jesus told him to take a step. He literally experienced the miraculous. I mean, he was able to walk. He might have done a backstroke in the pool. I don't know. My question is, is what is God telling you to do? I want you to think for your, about your handicap for a moment. What is God telling you to do? Do you want to get well? Yeah, of course. I mean, will you obey, obey his word completely? Eh, we'll see. See, our culture, we're always looking for the instant miracle, the quick fix, the lottery ticket. Please, God, would you please drop $5,000 in my account and get me out of the debt I've been piling up since college? Please, one fell swoop. God, would you zap my marriage and fix it after years of systematic neglect and unforgiveness? And we wonder. We're all about the instant miracle thing, but not so much the obedience part. But the truth is this. Ordinary obedience always comes before the extraordinary experience. That pattern is throughout Scripture everywhere. You always have to take a step of simple belief before there is a massive breakthrough. If you go throughout the Old Testament, you'll see this. I mean, God says to Moses, he says, take off your sandals. And because he takes off his sandals, he leads an entire nation out of slavery. God says, no, I want you to build an ark. But everyone's got to make fun of me. I want you to build an ark. Okay. And because he takes God at his word, his entire family is saved. Jesus tells the blind man, I want you to go wash the mud off your eyes. And after he obeys, he can see. God gives him spiritual sight and a renewed vision for life. Ordinary obedience comes before an extraordinary experience in God's economy. There's always a step of belief before there's a breakthrough. That's the pattern of Scripture. Some of you, when you think about this, you feel hopeless because you're looking for that extraordinary experience, the instant miracle, the lottery ticket, the quick fix, when really all that's needed at this moment is simple, ordinary obedience. Go back to our examples. If you're sitting on your mat... And you're relationally lame. It's your marriage. Maybe God is saying to you, get up and go see a counselor. It is not going to miraculously get better if you sit there day after day and let it atrophy. These things take time. The way out is the way in. God can heal your relationship, but you actually have to take a first step and put yourself in front of a healer. If it's an addiction, maybe God is telling you, get up and cut off the internet. Stop making lame excuses. Be honest about your condition. Actually, stop first stop lying to yourself and those you love, but you're paralyzed. You are stuck. Whether it's booze or pot or porn, whatever it is, that's your master right now, not Jesus. It actually has got you crippled. And God wants to heal you, but you have to ask for help. What's God telling you to do? Ordinary obedience always comes before this extraordinary experience. This man was not healed until he took Jesus at his word and took a first step. My question is, what's your first step? We make these things complicated. For some of you, it's utterly practical. It's right in front of you, but you've got to take it. If you're financially lame, 
then maybe you sign up this fall for Financial Peace University. This is the class we offer. It starts in three weeks. It gives you the tools to be potentially debt-free by Christmas. You don't have to be stuck in debt forever, but some things will have to change on the inside because money is a spiritual issue. You think it's about credit cards, and I know you're holding out for that like lottery thing, the instant miracle, but it's actually a spiritual issue. Sign up because God doesn't want you bound by debt. How do we know? Because he paid our spiritual debt with his life for heaven's sakes. But you have to take a practical step in this world. What's God telling you to do? Maybe, maybe it's to actually start tithing for the first time. Some folks have gone through, we had about 200 people go through Financial Peace University and it kind of ends with this thing like, awesome, you're out of debt. Now what can God do with actually the gifts that he's given you? It's like, oh, now give back to God? I don't know. I'm just glad I'm out of debt. Just wait. You'll be in that same place in just a matter of years and months. You have to, it's a change. I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking maybe some of you, your handicap is actually loneliness. I know that there are people who come to Liquid and um, it's great, but in a crowd of people, you feel all alone. You feel unknown or uncared for. And maybe you've actually been thinking about, you know what, I'm just going to bail because you come and you sit down week after week and you remain unknown. You don't know anybody and, and maybe you're not growing. Maybe get up and actually join a life group this fall. We have now over almost 70 life groups all across the state and literally, we have about 15 of them that only have one or two people in it because they're brand new. They just started. But we find it so hard for people just to make one step and say, I don't know, a whole night of the week just to get to know other people. I'm not sure. I just, maybe I'll just, and maybe you'll be in the same exact place next year. Get up. Sometimes our hurts, our habits, <laughs> our hang-ups seem so huge. We can't take the simple step that's right in front of us. For this man in John 5, before Jesus could change one thing in his life, this man had to take Jesus at his literal word and ask him, ask him, think about this. Would you change Jesus my inside before you do a thing about the outside? Our series is called Rock God. And I want to share with you the story of Brian Welsh. He's lead guitarist, was lead guitarist for the band Korn. And although he had it all, he had... Money, he had women, he had fame. He also had a pretty sweet crippling addiction to crystal meth until he did something very radical and took Jesus at his literal word. So in my head, I was like, okay, I'm going to accept Christ in front of everybody right now. Then I'm going to go home and snort drugs until I don't want to do them anymore. And that was my way of thinking. So I received Christ at the church. I went home neglected my daughter and put her in front of the TV. I remember I grabbed a $100 bill. I always used a $100 bill for some reason, pride or something. I chopped up my crystal meth, got it all smooth and powdery, and I snorted a big old line. And I held the bill and I looked up and I said, Jesus, if you're real like that pastor said, then you gotta take these drugs from me. Come into my life, come into my heart. And I just got quiet. I said, search me right now. Search my heart. And I stayed silent. And I said, you know I want to quit. You know I want to be a good dad for this kid. She lost her mother to drugs. And she's going to lose me if I don't quit. Amen. There's a high when you go on stage and you see all these people like just 
loving your music and loving you and stuff. And there's these girls and all these people going, <laughs> worshiping me. And when you see all those people just going nuts for you, it's like, you know, it, it puffs you up inside. You're like, you know, I'm important. That's where drugs can creep in and, you know, cocaine or whatever. Methamphetamines crept in and it all came from after drinking for me and, and my friends. And uh, it seems like fun in the beginning. It's a lie because it, it it turns around on you. It starts to wear on your personality. It starts to wear on your relationships. And everything is affected by it negatively. Everything. There was a, a few times where life seemed good. My daughter Janae, she came into the world and I was like, it was just such a, a euphoric feeling. I thought my life could just feel like that forever, you know. It was like a, it was spiritual, just, I didn't know what was happening. I just felt so much love just fill my emotions. And I thought I was going to be happy, but uh, I just couldn't, I couldn't stay sober. I didn't know how. I hit rock bottom. I had swore that I would never do methamphetamines again because I saw what it did to my child's mother. It, it just took her feelings away and made her leave her kid. I just wanted her dead. I wanted to kill her. I, I thought she was a scum of the earth and uh, you know, how could she do drugs like that and let it let the drugs win her like that? So I never was gonna do meth again. I ended up with a everyday crippling addiction to methamphetamine and everything that I said about my ex-wife came true for me. I sunk to the lowest gutter I could ever think of. I would spend time with my kid and I would still be on it because I needed it to function. I'd get up in the morning, have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and snort meth and then take her to school or whatever. It was just, I it was a junkie. I started losing my mind. This guy would show up at my house with like a gun and stuff. And then I ran out in Europe, had my drug dealer just crazy. send me drugs through, through the mail. I'd be tweaked out in my hotel room watching this package come from the U.S. It's just nuts. My life just was like spinning out of control. Janaea had come out on, a, on one of the tours in the U.S. I just remember me. her skipping around the house She's singing one of our corn songs called Adidas. All day I dream about sex. And I'm like going, what am I doing? I'm a junkie. My daughter's singing all day I dream about sex. And uh, I'm going to die. Father? My uh, real estate broker, Eric, he uh, he said, Brian, I don't mean to be weird with you. I hope you don't take this the wrong way, but I, f I felt the scripture like jump out at me. I've never done this before, you know, so I don't really know how to do this, but I felt like this would mean something to you. It's Matthew 11:28. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I remember all tweaked out. I looked up in the dictionary, wary. I looked up burdened, and I just I pulled the scripture apart, and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm wary and burdened, and I need rest for my soul, and uh, 
I didn't know if it was real, but you know, they invited me to church a couple couple weeks later, and I received Christ at the church. I went home, neglected my daughter, got it all smooth and powdery. Jesus, you got to take these drugs from me. Search me right now. Search my heart. Father. I felt so much fatherly love from, from heaven. And it was like, I don't condemn you. I love you. I love you. It was just love, love. And instantly, that love from God came into me. It was so powerful that the next day I threw away all my drugs. And uh, I quit corn. I was like, I'm quitting corn. And I'm going to raise my kid. Because my kid like I got the love from God coming to me and then it came out of me to my kid it changed me my heart was changed like that and I was like Janaya daddy's gonna be home with you all the time I'm quitting my career and her face lit up and she's like for me you know she felt so special and uh, God used her to save me to save her life later on my dream came true way more than I dreamt about. I got, I made more money. I played bigger shows. I mean, houses, cars. I tried drugs. I tried sex. I tried everything to try to get pleasure out of this life. And I thought that I could fulfill my life with all this stuff by, by having my dream come true. And it came true. But it didn't fulfill it. When Christ came in, that feeling He gives you the gift of understanding life, which is everything was created for Christ and by Him, and we we're created to be with Him. And it's the most incredible feeling because you're where you belong. And contentment is given to you in life because you don't have to look anywhere else. And you're exactly where you need to be. And the question about life is answered. I am Brian Head Welch, and I am second. Can God cure even a crippling addiction to crystal meth? You know He can. His name is Jehovah Rapha. It literally means the one who heals at the deepest places of the soul. I believe in the church, it's not the religious people who have it all together, but it's the ones on the fringe whose lameness had become a lifestyle, and yet they had the courage to take Jesus at his word and do whatever he says who are going to show the power of the Holy Spirit in the years to come. You're going to see this over and over as the story of their lives become the testimony to Christ's power to bring healing to the most broken parts of our lives that we think are intractable. That's the power of the gospel. Because Jesus doesn't just want to heal you. Jesus' goal is to take whatever our enemy uses to keep us crippled and lame, and he not only heals it, but he redeems it. That means he uses our pain and our suffering for good in the lives of others if we let him, and if we realize that simple belief always, always comes before breakthrough. Always. What's your handicap? 
What did you walk in with? What did you limp in with tonight? And what is God maybe telling you to do? 38 years is a long time. That's a long time. And somewhere along the way, the man by the pool, he stopped believing. When you stop believing that God can change things, you stop living, literally. I don't know what big problem you're carrying around this fall. Maybe, maybe you have a physical need. Maybe it's emotional, or maybe it's just spiritual. In fact, maybe today it's just dawned on you for the first time that you've become comfortable with your lameness. And look to every person other than Jesus for a cure. Can I just say gently, that's probably why you feel hopeless. Here in John 5, Jesus says, 38 years is a long time, but don't stop believing, but you must believe different. This man had to believe for the first time in his life on Christ, on Jehovah Rapha, because Christ is the only hope we have of true, lasting change, because it's about inner healing, and you need a change of heart before you can learn to walk again. Because the denial, the blaming, the bitterness, those are the real issues behind the lameness or the, or of your marriage or your addiction or your debt or your paralysis. Until you trust Jesus with this, you're going to be sitting on your mat in the same place next year. So my question is, what's God telling you to do? You will know it's his voice and not mine or your own head because he never contradicts his written word. And what he tells us to do rarely makes us feel comfortable. That's why we're mostly hesitant to take that first step. Is God telling you actually to get rid of the internet? This is your confirmation. Is he, is he telling you to ask somebody for forgiveness? Or to stop blaming and actually give forgiveness? Is he telling you to tear up your credit cards or, or to actually tithe? Is he telling you to join a group so you have people to study the Bible with and actually grow and not be in the same spot next year? or to get help with an addiction, or your marriage, whatever it is. Remember, guys, before Peter walked on water, he spent a whole lot of years walking on dirt. A whole lot of years. Quick fixes are not the norm. That's why they're called miracles. The word literally means results not typical. Don't sit waiting for this extraordinary experience when all Jesus is asking today is literally ordinary obedience. If you take that first step and you get up, you will see the miraculous unfold in your life by the power of Christ. I want to pray for each of you right now, for every person in this room if you're watching online. So let's just bow our heads together. Undoubtedly, there are things even now, you're, the Spirit is waking up in you, and that's what that is. That's God's Spirit. Father, I thank you right now for the Spirit of Jesus. This is not a story from 2,000 years ago, God. This is alive in our lives today. You are still performing miracles. You are taking broken people who are lame and crippled, but who have simple faith, and you are putting them back together. Lord, thank you for putting me back together. Thank you for the, the story of Brian Welsh. Lord, I thank you for the people in this room who are in our church. This is the perfect place for imperfect people. I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you will begin a work of healing in the lives of several men who are here today, Father, who are literally gripped, who are shackled by porn. Lord, I don't, even, I don't even know I just said that because that's just something right now. I just get this sense, Lord God, that there are people you are speaking to here today in this moment, and you want to breathe hope. Do not give up. He can heal you. He can change you. 
Lord, I pray right now for people who feel hopeless about their relationship, Lord, or their, their, just where they are in life. They feel stuck. They feel paralyzed, Father God. I pray that you look down on your people. Lord, your eyes search over the earth. Would you just right now look down on your children, Father? Know our hearts, Lord God. We want to be well. In fact, in this moment, let's just keep our eyes closed right now. You're facing a big issue, but you want to just shoot your hand up and say, God, see me. See me. I want to be well. There's something in my life. Would you just shoot your hand right up? This is for God, actually, not for me. Just shoot your hand up real quick. Over on the right-hand side, in the back, a bunch of hands on the left. Awesome. God sees you. God sees exactly. He knows exactly better than you do. Two hands on the right. Praise God for you. Lord, these hands are being lifted to you, actually, as a sign of surrender. They are asking for your intervention, God, by your Spirit's power. And we believe Jesus is alive, he is living, he is alive in our life, in this room, and we ask for his spirit to be poured out on us. God, I pray for breakthrough. I pray for a huge breakthrough in these hands. Lord, not just this week, but in this entire year to come, because we want to be here next week testifying, Lord, to the power of the gospel in our life, to break the most broken parts and make it whole. So we ask for that healing. Thank you, Jesus, that you were bruised for our iniquities, and by your stripes we're healed. Lord, thank you for the cross. All power comes out of your sacrifice for our sins. And so now reconcile us back to you. Do it in the name, the good, trustworthy name of your precious son, Jesus. It's in his name we all agree together. Amen.